I am your host, Michelle T. And right now we are in the midst of a special Your Magic series that focuses on some way on reproduction, sperm donors, parents, abortion rights activists. All this is because I have a new book out. It's called Knocking Yourself Up, a memoir of my infertility. You can look for it wherever books are sold. So today on the show, I'll be talking to Carly Moore, author of the essay collection, 16 Pills, and two novels, The Not Wives and the very timely Panapocalypse, which she wrote in real time, beginning at the start of the pandemic in New York City. We're going to talk about in vitro fertilization, the weird games kids like to play, and how having a disability can render time cosmic. And also, if you want to help support making this podcast, check out patreon.com backslash this is your magic, where you can get all sorts of perks. There's a monthly tarot reading based on your zodiac and the phases of the moon. There are tarot workshops where we dive deep into a single card, that sort of thing. We make this podcast as a labor of love, and we appreciate all of you for supporting us. And if you really want to wear your heart on your literal sleeve or your head, check out our gorgeous Zodiac Elemental t-shirts and our style and dad hats at our online shop at thisisyourmagic.com backslash shop. Okay, now let's get on with the show. Babies are kind of spooky, aren't they? I mean, there's a reason for Rosemary's baby, for Chucky. Their toys are creepy too. Think of dolls and clowns and maybe even stuffed animals. Why do babies and toddlers and kids too, right? Like Danny and The Shining or the little boys in Us. Why are they such great vehicles for terror? Is it the juxtaposition of someone so utterly innocent actually being close to evil that seizes our heart and feels so wrong? They're the most powerful people on the planet, and in these fictions, they suddenly have inexplicable powers. Is it that? Are they fictional stand-ins for the many terrors of childhood, from bad dreams to actual danger? Probably all of this, plus a library full of academic psychoanalytic writings. My own child was not a particularly spooky baby, though I might have been a particularly spooky mom. I recall one night when he was fussy and filled with angst, red-faced and screaming, he was impossible to soothe, like utterly bereft. Looking down at his squishy little face, soft and wrinkly and just existentially upset, I couldn't help wonder where he had only just been. I mean, I know he'd been in my uterus, but I'm talking past life. I kept thinking of a man in the prime of his life, somewhere in Europe in a fast car, speeding along a freeway, perhaps with a love interest beside him, gunning the engine, both to impress his crush and to feel the speedy thrill of his invincibility. The car is a convertible, of course, and you know, fresh winds crash against them and they laugh, and this is totally a peak moment in both of their lives. And then, wham, something happens. A crash. He's dead instantly. And almost as instantly being plucked from my womb by a doctor. He's stuffed into this little baby body now. It's so new. The very air is too much on his skin. Everything is so bright and loud and sudden. And this guy is like, fuck, I died. Wait, no. Where's my car? Where's my love? Where's everything else? The European sunshine. Where's my family, my job, my body? Where'd everything go? No. All of this, I imagined, was happening in the psyche of this tiny, miserable being, this wordless, languageless bundle of raw emotion. I'll never know what it was like for him. Then there was this moment when my kid was like three years old, when he would tell me stories about his grandfather. I would listen with this tense stillness, as if the story were a magical creature that could be startled back into the forest. Oh yeah? I'd say casually, what else? 
because, you know, my son at, at the time didn't have a grandfather. My dad was dead, and before that we'd been estranged for decades. My co-parent was similarly estranged from their dad. So who was this grandfather my kid was talking about? Well, he lived on a farm for starters. He was an old man who liked to play the flute. He raced cars. I lived with him, my son told me. Oh yeah, I repeated, what else? He seemed to think about it, then shrugged, his focus reclaimed by the collection of superhero figurines we'd been playing with. Of course I wanted to think my kid was remembering a past life. I still don't think he wasn't. I mean, who knows? Lots of people believe that babies and small children, being so recently in the beyond, have access to memories and spirits that we adults have grown out of, letting the logical world of grown-ups dull our spectral senses, allowing our sightings to be written off as imagination until we ignore it and it goes away. I don't really have much memory of being a spooky kid myself, not counting trying to get everyone in the neighborhood to play witches or vampires with me. I did have an imaginary friend though, Rufus, when I was very small, and I do wonder about him often. If he was a rando spirit or a specific ancestor, a guardian angel, or of course maybe just my imagination. Like so many mystical mysteries, as well as the mysteries of childhood, I don't think I'll ever know for sure. But perhaps I'll start addressing my spirit guides as Rufus, just to see what happens. Here's Carly Moore. Carly Moore, welcome to Your Magic. It's so fun to have you on here. Thank you. I am so honored to be on here. So I wanted to ask you, just first off, have you, were you raised with any sort of like a spiritual tradition or a good one, a bad one, a neutral one, an absent one? <laughs> so my father's an atheist. That's his, that's what he says. And that's true. And my mother's like a lapsed Lutheran. And, but I did go to Catholic school until third grade. What the hell is the difference between Lutheran and Catholic? Like, I don't understand. I was raised Catholic. I don't know. You don't know either. Okay. My mother, yeah, my mother, grew, yeah, she went to church Lutheran growing up. But, yeah, my parents were definitely um, counterculture and, and kind of hippies. I'm named after Carly Simon. Yeah, they didn't want religion to be part of my life, although then I ended up having the weird Catholic school thing. We didn't talk about spirituality or anything really i mean the other interesting thing i'll say about jamestown is it's close to lilydale which is this spiritualism capital of i think it's like the psychic capital of the world or it's the most psychics per square mile of any of any town or any place so that was also in the backdrop of my childhood especially in my teenage years like my father used to go to a psychic and then i went to her also and had a very transformative experience with her what was the experience? I was about 17. Or maybe I was about to graduate high school. And, you know, my, my family was, there's a lot of, there's a lot of trauma and abuse and, and a lot of mess in my family. And um, my parents, I think they were probably, my, my joke about my parents' divorce is they started talking about it when I was 10, but they didn't do it till I was 18. So it was always in the background, like this constant sort of imminent divorce. I don't know, I sat on the porch with her and she basically just described me to myself completely. Um, and also described my family dynamics like perfectly. Um, and then talked a lot with me about my brother and um, my relationship with my brother is really complicated. And, you know, she was very, it was very important to her that I take care of him. She was very worried about him. So yeah, it was really amazing. I felt, but it was a profound sense of being seen. 
That's what I was going to say. Like the idea that she explained yourself to you, you know, or that I can imagine that being so powerful as a teenager, especially. Yeah, it really was. She understood, you know, I was a writer even then, and she really kind of named that really clearly. And she knew that I was going to go away. And um, yeah, she, it was, it was very, it was very amazing as a teenager to be seen in that way. I wanted to ask you about how living since, since your childhood with a disability, how has that impact your spiritual process at all? I feel like having a cosmic sense of time has really helped me as a disabled person. A lot of the new book, Pampocalypse, is about disability and time and, and pandemic time. And definitely probably something about suffering and pain, which are less a part of my life currently, but have been parts of my life at various times and were big parts of my life when I was younger and very, very sick and undiagnosed. Something about your body as like uh, this temporary vessel, you know, like that you don't actually have to be in this body for the rest of your cosmic existence. I think that's really important. Sometimes you just want to be out of your body and like be on another plane. You mentioned um, how um, Panapocalypse is about being disabled and living with a disability and time and the way that they impact each other, those two things impact each other. And of course, it made me think about how there's literal time travel in your book, which feels like a very grounded in reality book. And then suddenly you're in like, what what era of France was that, of Paris? Is it the Belle Epoque? No, I went back to 1930s, like gay Perry, and in particular, this uh, lesbian, famous lesbian bar called Le Monocle. In the beginning of Pampocalypse, the character Orpheus slash Carly, who's looking for Eurydice, um, you know, and during the lockdown New York pandemic is, um, you know, the very beginning of it is riding her bike around and sees these signs for Le Monocle, which is an updated version where, you know, queer people could actually touch each other. Queer single people during the pandemic could somehow touch if they if they, you know, tested negative. So she starts seeing these signs. And then I didn't really, I did not plan the time travel part, just felt completely right at some point in the middle of writing it, obviously. I, and I've never done time travel. So I was like a writerly challenge. Um, I do love portals. Like I've always had a thing about portals, any kind of thing that feels like a portal, I'm, I'm pretty obsessed with. So it was kind of a natural thing for me to do eventually. Did you enjoy the the challenge of it? I did. It was really fun. I mean, I had Nick Whitney, our feminist press editor, helping me. At first, I was like, okay, there, it's just going to happen. Like, there won't be a portal. Like, suddenly, she'll just be there. And we had a lot of hilarious conversations about, like, what, <laughs> whether or not I could get away with that. And you know, he was really like, I really think we need a portal. And uh, he was right. So uh, it took me a while. There, there were also other versions which like she falls and then that causes the time travel. Um, I had many different versions of how to get there. But eventually I figured out that like the location and and that it would happen through orgasm. <laughs> you know, an orgasm can scramble your wiring. Why not scramble your consciousness? Why not scramble the way your consciousness relates to time? <laughs> Why not scramble time? Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, this is in one of your books about, I think, I can't remember, it's in, it is in your essay collection, 
the the title is escaping me, your last one. Oh, Against Memoir? Yeah, and it's in Against Memoir about how queer sex in particular can be a trapeze act, it can be like a circus, it can be like, you know, in in every way when when you're having queer sex, you're like inventing sex. And so that seems to fit really well to me with the whole like, or scrambling of orgasm and, and queer orgasm too. Yeah, especially queer orgasm. So I want to ask you like baby parenting kind of questions, you know, we're doing like like a, a whole mom block on the podcast, honestly, because I have my book, Knocking Myself Up, coming out, which is about my trip to get pregnant. Yeah, I want to know like, how did you decide that you wanted to be a parent? I am so excited for your book. And I remember when you were doing the column and it was like one of the first spaces, public spaces, I felt that I was really reading openly about someone doing IVF. And that was such a big deal for me because I had done IVF to have uh, my child. Um, And, you know, that was 13 years ago, 14, I guess, when we were doing IVF. But yeah, I just, at that point, I just didn't really... I didn't really know anyone who was doing it and it was a very isolating experience and just so weird and you know it definitely brought up like past medical trauma stuff for me which I wasn't really thinking would happen and my joke about my pregnancy is that I say that it's the most unnatural supposedly natural thing I've ever done like I just found it I found the whole thing to be just so clinical and yeah it all happened in the doctor's office and you know it was weird. I think that I kind of always wanted to be a parent. I don't think that it was a very examined thought. <laughs> um, and at that point, I was married to a man, um, you know, who's still, we're really good friends. And um, I didn't know I was queer. I mean, I think I probably knew in some underground way, but I didn't, I didn't really, like I wasn't out. And I didn't, yeah, I was just on this very, like, I'm straight, I'm married, I'm having children. In spite of how, like, clinical it was for you to become pregnant via IVF, were there any, was there any moments of mystery that you can remember or anything that you were able to sort of, I don't know, hold on to or, or get struck by? So Malka started out as a twin, like, they implanted two embryos or two blasts you know which are which are not people they are not people they're like weird little circles it's like i mean i i feel like i mean i'm not gonna go down that road but i feel like look i fucking saw that and that's not <laughs> right it's like totally like yeah. I, I the doctor sent me the picture of the weird globular <laughs> cell formation yeah. of circles and it's so um so, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of, and, and then we, we lost that other baby in like the fourth and a half month. And so that was very mysterious. And that's just something that happens with, you know, pregnancy and miscarriage. And so there was a lot of mystery around the, that loss. And then later when I talked about it with my daughter, when she was, I, I think we started talking about it when she was five. I, I think I wanted to do it sooner, but I was just sort of unsure the first thing she said was, well, why didn't you tell me sooner? Which was it was a really good, you know, it was a really good response. I realized, was able to realize like, oh, I, I think I was just really sad. It took me a really long time to be able to talk about it with you. And then some of the mysterious things that she started to do after that is like, I'd go in her room and she'd be like, oh, she'd be looking in the mirror. She'd be like, oh, I'm talking to my twin. Um, 
and you know you you can hang out but like we're having a private conversation like it was really cool and mysterious and and then she also had just a lot of like interesting things that she talked about in the womb happening with her twin yeah I just felt like yeah tell me tell me everything um so that was very mysterious and interesting and and I think you know she really helped me heal just by talking about this time in her womb life. God, that's so cool. That's really beautiful. It was. Yeah. I mean, the other thing she did when I told her, she said, she said, let's pretend that I'm being born again, but let's let me be born with, so we had named this, this, uh, baby, uh, Sal. And she was like, let's pretend that Sal and I are both coming out. And I was like, you know, it was like crazy, you know, like how parenting is like these questions, these things never come up when you think they are. It was like Saturday morning, we were just like cuddling in bed and like, had just had breakfast or something. And I was like, okay. And then like, she did this little reenactment and it was very healing. And I, I think I cried and it was, I don't know, it was really beautiful. I, so I feel like the mysterious things are the things that she's given me so many things, but that especially. Oh, that's so beautiful. How unexpected that you would get to process something like that with your daughter and through a form of play, really. Yeah, really, it was. It was really amazing. I felt very lucky. And I, you know, I basically feel that way with her all the time. I mean, you know, we have our moments, but she's just such an interesting person. I don't know if you, I'm, I'm sure you feel this way as a parent, too. I mean, there are, like, the, the crazy moments of just, like, oh, my God, this is so hard. And then there are, like, oh, my yeah, the conversations. I'm like, wow, we're just talking about the wildest things. Yeah, the conversations make everything worthwhile, you know. I mean, I feel like overall I feel pretty lucky in that, like, I have a pretty easy time with my kid. But, yeah, the conversations are so super cool. And, you know, I do think that, that yeah, that's totally – there's so many moments of parenting that are just like, yeah, from the outside, you're like, oh, my God, this is so creepy, but this is what we do. <laughs> me and Addie still play this we play this game um, and I always hate when he wants to play it because it's exhausting it's called Kookified so he comes over to me and we just like pretend like we're sitting on the couch doing nothing and then he touches the top of my head and he goes Kookified and then we're both like hyper rambunctious like three year olds together and we're like ah! we talk in baby voices and we run around and we roll on a yoga ball and like hit each other and I can only do it for five minutes I have to set an alarm because it is exhausting and for a while he didn't want to do it anymore and I was like thank god we're not playing kookified anymore and then I felt really sad I was like remember when I was his his three-year-old sister like what happened to that you know that weird little thing and then I was just like remember kookified and then he wanted to play it again then I was like fuck why did I do that this is so (laughs) exhausting let it be a poignant memory (laughs) I have yeah that sounds like an amazing game and I also I hear you on the exhaustion thing like I feel like as a as an older became uh became a mom a little bit older like they're just so there are so many things that uh especially when she was younger we didn't have that we had a version of that game that it just really involved Malka just getting really really nuts every night at like bedtime for like an hour and a half where she would just like jump off all the furniture, jump on me, like just roll around. Like, yeah. And I remember just thinking like, Oh my God, I'm so tired. <laughs> like this is, like a, this is why people do it younger sometimes. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I, but I, I'd rather have the like, I don't know, maturity, wisdom, and life experience and sacrifice a little of the physical endurance, you know, I think. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I hope. Agree. I also just can't even imagine myself as a parent in my 20s. Like, I just was complete. Even, yeah, 20s, early early 30s, like, I, I yeah, I couldn't have, I couldn't have managed. No, I was a feral alcoholic. It just would have been terrible, terrible. Um, how was your, what was your birth like? What's, what's your, what's your birth story? I had a really, I mean, even though I had a really high risk, complicated pregnancy, I had a super easy birth. Like, I mean, I was, I did end up being induced, but it was pretty chill for me and had an epidural because I was like, you know, I've had enough pain in my life. Like, I'm not going to, you know, not going to be this hero. Like, I had no interest in that. Um, and I, you This know, is also refreshing to hear. <laughs> Were you, did you find yourself oppressed at all or like uh, around that sort of like the mindful neo-hippie pregnant lady was, sort of I like? Very oppressive. And I was also living in Park Slope at the time in Brooklyn. And it was, it was really at the height of like the mommy wars and mommy blogging and like breast is best and, and like... The tyranny of the natural childbirth. Oh, my God. It was really oppressive. Like, I wasn't going to get into it with any of those people around that shit because I just was like, you know, fuck off. You don't know what I've been through medically. And, like, I don't feel any kind of way about, like, I don't feel any kind of bad way about doing this. And it was really fast. I pushed I pushed four times. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the Pitocin. And, like, I definitely... You know, I definitely got torn up. It was, you know, it was not, it was not great recovery. But um, yeah, she just like slid right out. Do you feel that becoming a parent and going through, you know, pregnancy and everything, do you feel that it, you know, on the other side of it, do you feel more, did it alter you at all psychically, emotionally, chemically? Like, how do you feel different on the other side of it if you do? I mean, I feel becoming a parent, becoming a mom completely transformed me, like 100%. It made me a better writer. It made me, it made me smarter. It made me more chill. It made me value my time more. Like that whole move from like a really intense writing day of kind of accomplishing nothing to like, okay, you have an hour. (laughs) Like you got to just do shit. Um, so, you know, that mentality is a huge shift in my writing life. And also, yeah, just getting to, you know, help this person be in the world and watch her become her own person. I I just think it's really, um, it's really a good exercise in, for me and like empathy. And also like, I have a lot of codependency issues, so... I get to work through those with her and, you know, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. How do you feel about that? I feel like I, I mean, not to be a super downer, but I feel like I'm much closer to mortality and the temporariness of, of life. Yeah, it can be very overwhelming sometimes. And I am definitely a person that I thought was already in touch with that. Like, but it was almost like I was intellectually in touch with it. Yeah. But now I'm like hormonally in touch with it and I feel it inside of myself and it can be very, you know, I don't know, like I definitely 
you know, think about my death a lot. I think about my child's death, you know, I think about death. <laughs> and it's, you know, just trying to find the right, the proper place for, for that, for those thoughts and those feel and the feelings, you know, um, I feel like I'm always just trying to figure out like, where, where's, where's the right place to, to put these things so that I'm not squashing them. I am not obsessing on them. I'm giving them their proper place in my human life, you know? I feel that too. I mean, I'm, I'm in a place I'm, yeah, I, I feel all those things too. And I also feel like turning 50 is like a really heavy, intense thing that I'm, I've been pretending is like chill, but is not. And when, yeah, when I, when I was really thinking or kind of on the day of turning 50, I was like, okay, you have like 20 more years to like accomplish all the things that you want to do. And then, you know, I was like, I just really felt that so strongly. It's not necessarily true. I mean, that's just an arbitrary thing. I mean, the women in my family do live to be, like my grandma's still alive. I mean, she's not doing well, but she's 95. My mom is 74. Um, but yeah, I, I I feel that. And also, you know, a pregnancy, the, the pregnancy was, there was death in it and losing the other twin. And I really did feel like, I really understood that like pregnancy can kill you and can kill everybody. Like it can kill, you, could, you know, you could just emerge with a lot of loss. And so that was a time that I felt like really close to death. That's our show. I hope you've been inspired to regard kids a little differently as possible links to whatever lies beyond this earthly realm. Or if not, I hope we've at least inspired you to go book shopping. Both my new book, Knocking Myself Up, and Carly Moore's latest, Panapocalypse, can be found wherever you buy books. Until next time. Thanks for tuning into Your Magic. You can support us, plus get access to a whole bunch of bonus content at patreon.com backslash thisisyourmagic. Thank you to those who support us. Every dollar makes this work possible. You can also support us by buying one of our Air, Earth, Water, or Fire t-shirts or logo hats. Go to thisisyourmagic.com backslash shop to see all of our merch. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thisisyourmagic and subscribe to our newsletter at thisisyourmagic.com. Join us on Discord at the link in the show notes. You can rate us and subscribe right here on Spotify. Do what you need to do to never miss an episode. You can email us at hello at thisisyourmagic.com. We would love to hear from you. Your magic is Ben Cooley, me, Michelle T, Molly Elizalde, Tony Gannon, Vera Blossom, and our production intern, Kirsten Osai-Bonzu. And our original theme music is by John Kimbrough. Thanks for listening. <laughs>